0: Good morning. If you please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This morning we find ourselves once again in the David and Bathsheba narrative that we've been in for the past few weeks. It is a tragic story. The great fall of a great king. Uh, It's a sobering warning for each and every one of us who loves the Lord that uh, sin is crouching at the door and that we too must take heed lest we fall. Because it's David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, God's anointed king. uh, The king of righteousness and justice. uh, He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and he tries to cover it up by murdering her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And even though, uh, humanly speaking, David seems to get away with it, the Lord who sees and knows all, he sends Nathan the prophet to expose the sin and confront him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And last Sunday, we talked extensively about David's response to being confronted on his sin. And look again at verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. A genuine repentance before the Lord. David's heart is truly broken over his sin. It's not just empty words. David takes full responsibility for his sin. He's not looking to blame other people or circumstances. David realizes that his sin is primarily against God, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. As a result, David's joy is restored. And most importantly, David finds forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. An eternal forgiveness that Jesus achieved by taking on human flesh. Remember, he is eternally very God of very God, And yet in his incarnation, he becomes a man, a human like you and me and David. And he lives the perfect life that we never could. And he dies in place of sinners like you and like me and like David, uh, taking upon himself all the sins of his people, paying for their sin by suffering the wrath of God in their place. And then he rises again from the dead to prove that all the sins of those who would repent and believe in him are indeed paid for. Now David, though he doesn't know all the details of Jesus and the cross like we do now, but he looked forward by faith to this gospel. Right? There is one gospel uh, that God would somehow provide for his people a means to be truly forgiven of their sin. And that's why when you read some of his psalms. That's why he can write things like Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, when David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Paul quotes that passage in Romans chapter 4 to show that David understood the idea, even back then, Of God granting righteousness apart from works. And so David gets it. How about this in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Again, David is by faith looking forward to the gospel. Or this in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. And so David was forgiven eternally, and he knew it. What a sweet assurance that was for him, even as he repented of his sin before the Lord. He would not pay for his adultery and his murder with an eternity in hell. But instead, he would live in God's presence in heaven For the rest of eternity, where I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But, even though he is eternally forgiven of his sin, even though God has put away his sin, even though David will never suffer the eternal consequences of his sin, that doesn't mean that there aren't earthly consequences to his sin in this life. Everything's not just going to go back to normal. Like, let's just turn the clock back to 2 Samuel chapter 10 and just go back to life like it was back then. No, because of what David did in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah, his life is forever going to be changed, and much of the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is about that. That all begins here in our passage for this morning. So let's look at our verses now. Second uh, Samuel chapter 12 verses 14 through 31. Now we're just going to work our way through this narrative, kind of section by section, uh, see what we can apply to our own lives. And uh, if you're taking notes, uh, I have four points to just kind of help us keep organized. And all of them, how about that? Begin with uh, the letter R. And so the first point from verses 14 and 15 is the repercussions the repercussions, the consequences of David's sin, they begin to manifest themselves right here. Look along as I read verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, because by this deed, referring to what he did in chapter 11, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. Now the consequences of his sin in this life, well, they're going to be multifaceted for David. As God tells him all the way back in verse 10, the sword is never going to depart from his house. That is literally fulfilled in that David is going to lose three of his sons to the sword. Amnon, uh, Absalom, and Adonijah. And then verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. There's going to be a rebellion against him. It's going to divide the nation in this civil war and it's going to come from his own house. It's going to be led by his own son, Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, just like he took Bathsheba. So then Absalom is going to take his concubines But all that, all that's going to take a few years to materialize. But there is one more earthly consequence to his sin that's going to be immediate, right away. One that is directly related to the child conceived in adultery. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will die. Because of David's sin the baby is going to die. Now, uh, we should note that this is not the typical pattern. Uh, This is an atypical, unusual situation, uh, as is the case with most of what happens in David's life. Right after all, David is God's specially anointed king. He is a unique character in redemptive history. And so his life, and God's direct involvement in his life, Right, that is unique in many ways. Specifically, the fact that this child is going to die for the sin of his parents, that is an unusual circumstance. I'm sure you have cases where the sin of the parents directly causes the death of a child. and Maybe the most blatant example of that is the evil of abortion. But that's not what's happening here. But the death of the child isn't directly caused by David's sin. Rather, God afflicts the child as a consequence of David's sin. And again, that is an unusual circumstance. In John chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples that it's not because of the man's parents' sin that he is born blind. In Ezekiel 18, God declares, "...the soul that sins shall die." The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. And So that's the the general principle. This here is an exception to the rule. Generally, we need to be careful about drawing straight lines from a certain sin to a certain sickness or affliction or death, especially from a parent's sin to a child's affliction. But here, the scriptures make it clear. The baby is afflicted as a consequence of David's sin. Because of David's sin, look at verse 16, the Lord afflicted the child and he became sick. Point number one, the repercussions. Now we might have questions. We should have questions about why God would choose to do that. Like, why does the baby have to die for David's sin? But those are questions which the text doesn't answer for us. And so the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But what we can be sure that this text is teaching us, and therefore what we should be focusing our attention on, is that there may be consequences, earthly consequences, even to forgiven sins. But just look at the juxtaposition in verses 13 and 14. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. But David, you are forgiven of your sin. Nevertheless, there will be earthly consequences. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, even if the specific thing that happens here to David, the death of his child as a consequence of his sin, uh, even if that is perhaps largely unique to his circumstance, uh, the general principle still holds for us who are God's people. That even for those of us who are Christians, and so our sin has been cast into the depth of the sea, Uh, We've been separated from our sin as far as the East is from the West. Our sins have been nailed to the cross, right? And the Bible uses this really powerful imagery over and over to depict the truth that believers will never pay for their sins in the judgment. But, 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 there may still be earthly consequences to our sins. This is the principle of reaping what we sow. So for example, in a sinful burst of anger, you kick a table and you get an x-ray. Sir, you need surgery, Uh, but I repented. Well, it doesn't really matter, right? You can repent of your sin, you can be forgiven by God of your sin, you can change your ways, but that doesn't change the fact that your foot is now broken. Or you go into debt. The funding your sinful habits. You can repent of your sin. You can be forgiven by God of your sin. You can change your ways, but at the end of the day, like you may still owe a lot of money. Just because your debt to God is forgiven, that doesn't mean that your debt to MasterCard is. Or you're unfaithful to your spouse. Again, you can repent of your sin, you can be forgiven by God of your sin, you can change your ways, but it can still take years and years and years to repair the damage that you've done to your marriage. There are earthly consequences to our sins. But then here's the kind of counterintuitive takeaway for us here, which is that we as believers, we ought to be very thankful that such consequences exist. Because oftentimes, the earthly consequences of our sins can act as a major deterrent for us, to keep us from stumbling, to keep us walking closely with the Lord. Like, what is it that prevents me from committing adultery? Well, ultimately, like, first and foremost... It is a desire to honor the Lord and his word, right? It's his spirit working in me as one who's been regenerated uh, to pursue holiness, to desire Godlikeness. But it's also the many terrible earthly consequences that would surely come about in terms of my marriage and my children and my family and my ministry. Like after everything that David's going to go through as a result of his adultery, he's never going to commit that sin again. And we would be wise not to ignore his example. His sin and its consequences uh, that we might be spared from similar sorrow. Believers ought to be thankful that God uses the consequences of our sin to keep us from sin. To keep us walking closely with him. And friends, if you find yourself right now in a season in which You're reaping what you've sowed? Like you're you're suffering some significant consequences because of some sin that you've committed? Well, even in that suffering, can you praise God that he's using that in your life to discipline you as a good father that you might share in his holiness? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's something for which we ought to be able to give thanks. And point number one, the repercussions. Second, let's consider point number two, uh, the responses, and that's in verses 16 through 23. the reason response is there is in the plural is because there's actually two responses here, each of which might be initially surprising in its context. And so the first response, right, that the child is sick, but still alive, the first response is David devoting himself to fervent prayer. Look at 16 and 17. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Now initially, uh, that might be a surprising response. Why is David praying so fervently like God's already told him that the baby's going to die? What is the point of praying Well, we see examples throughout the scriptures of God's people praying that God would change his verdict. And sometimes, according to his sovereign will, he relents of judgment because of his people's prayers. So for example, after the incident with the golden calf, right, Moses is told by God that God is going to wipe out the people and start a new nation through him. So what does Moses do? He prays earnestly. The text says that he implored the Lord his God. And so God relents of the disaster. Or when King Hezekiah gets deathly sick and he's told by God that he would die, you shall not recover, he's told. What then does he do? Well, he prays earnestly. The text says that he wept bitterly. And God answers by adding 15 years to his life. And so here David reasons, right? Look at verse 22. Who knows? Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? And so like Moses and like Hezekiah, David seeks God. He implores God. He fasts and he prays earnestly and he lays on the ground for an entire week. By the way, you remember last week we spoke about the necessity of a changed heart in terms of genuine repentance. Repentance. Here's yet more evidence of David's changed heart. And because the same man who cold-heartedly ordered the killing of Uriah, the same man who callously dismissed the deaths of the other soldiers, uh, the sword devours now one and now another, the same man who would have been very happy to give the child away to Uriah and have nothing to do with him, that same man is now desperately concerned for the life of this child. He is pleading and begging God to spare his life. But God, according to his sovereign plan, his perfect wisdom, God says no to David's prayer. And so the child dies. Now, his servants don't know what to do, they don't know how they're going to break the news to David that the baby died. Look at verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Like he's been so extreme in his response so far continual prayer and, and fasting and prostrating himself on the ground before the Lord, like he hasn't eaten, he hasn't gotten up in a week. they're genuinely concerned about how he's going to respond to the news that the baby is now dead. So you can kind of picture them huddled up in a circle, just whispering amongst themselves, you tell him, you tell him. But David's perceptive enough to suspect that something is going on, and so he just asks them directly, and they confirm that indeed, the child is dead. Which brings us to the second response here, and David's response to finding out about the child's death uh, perhaps is even more puzzling and more surprising than the first. Look at verse 20. He basically gets up from the ground where he's been laying for a week. He takes a shower. He puts on a new shirt. He goes to worship the Lord, and then he comes home to eat dinner, The, the first bite of food that he's had in a week. Why? Well, he explains himself in verses 22 and 23. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. A couple of things to notice there. First, notice that David has come a very, very long way from where he was in the beginning of the chapter. Like at the beginning of chapter 12, unrepentant, heart is hard against God. God himself says David is despising the Lord. But now, here, not only has David repented genuinely, But even in the terrible pain of the consequences of his sin, even in losing his child, he demonstrates a satisfaction in God and his will. He is not accusing God of wrongdoing. He is not questioning God's goodness. Rather, there is this submission to and acknowledgement of and contentment with God's good purposes even in this incredible tragedy. It's not that David's unaffected by the death and he's just coldly trying to move on. No, surely he grieved this loss for the rest of his life. But at the same time, he's got this deep, abiding trust in God's sovereignty and God's goodness, and he expresses that trust by worshiping God. We can only assume that in his season of unrepentant sin, that even if he went through the outward motions of worship, his heart was very far from God. But here he's been brought back again, brought back near through this season of repentance, fasting, prayer. He's back to walking closely with the Lord again. And so there is just a certain sweetness to that line in verse 20. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It's still a matter of fact, but at the same time, it's such a precious picture of the change that God has worked in David's heart. And his response there, worship in the face of great loss, well, it reminds us of another Old Testament character, doesn't it? One who lost even more than David did. And apart from any sin that he committed, Job lost all his children and all his servants and all his wealth, like in one unfathomably tragic day. What does he do in response to that loss? He falls on the ground and worships. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's basically the heart of David here. He knows that he, through fervent fasting and praying, that he has done all that he could to petition God for the child's life. God's answer is no. And so David goes back to doing what he loves to do the most. Worshiping his God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So first, we see in these verses God's answer to David's prayer in Psalm 51. God restores to him the joy of his salvation. The second, what do we make of that last line there? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. What does it mean? Well, the second half is straightforward. He will not return to me. David is addressing the fact that his dead son is not going to come back to life, no matter how much he fasts or mourns. Can I bring him back again? The answer is no. Uh, There's a certain finality in this life to death. Apart from the handful of miraculous raisings that we read about in the scriptures, there is a finality in this life to death. But that first half, I shall go to him, it's a little trickier. It could mean that David too is going to die. That he too is going to go to the grave. That while his son is definitely not going to come back to life, David definitely is going to die. But it could also mean that David's going to go to his son in heaven. Remember, this is the David who, by faith trust that he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like, he knows that he's going to be spending an eternity with God. So perhaps this statement is him saying that the baby has gone ahead of him into heaven. I shall go to him. Honestly, it's hard to say exactly what David means here. I think given the comfort that David seems to take not only expressed in the abrupt end to his fasting and weeping, but also notice that in the next verse, he as one who himself has been comforted is now described as giving comfort to Bathsheba. I lean towards David referring to the child going to heaven, and this being an expression of his hope of seeing him again there. Now, if that is the correct interpretation then it takes what David says here from being a self-evident statement about his own death to one of taking comfort in expectant hope, right? Even in the midst of tragedy, which seems to better fit the context. But that also brings up a bigger question, whether babies who die go to heaven. And there is not a chapter and a verse that undeniably answers that question. Like Romans 10 13 undeniably answers the question of whether people who call upon the Lord go to heaven. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's not a, a specific chapter or verse like that that addresses this scenario. But given the comfort that David seems to take here in 2 Samuel 12, And even if I'm wrong about my interpretation of that verse, given the close connection in the scriptures between those who suffer God's wrath and their conscious, deliberate acts and deeds of wickedness that are deserving of justice, their suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, uh, conscious acts of which uh, babies have not committed, given God's merciful nature, I believe that Babies who die go to heaven. Say, so how? When they're not able to repent and believe. Well, it's by the same mercy of God and the same unconditional election, the same atoning work of Christ on their behalf applied to their souls in a regeneration completely apart from their works, completely apart from anything that they do. In that sense, it's not all that different from our salvation. But back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Consider David's responses here. David, in response to a dying son, he fervently prays. David, in response to the death of his son, fervently worships. And while both responses might initially be surprising in their context, well, hopefully we've seen that they're both quite fitting for a man after God's own heart. Point number two the response is. We'll skip over verses 24 and 25 for just a moment. We'll get back to them in just a minute. But let's look first at the end of the chapter, verses 26 through 31. So point number three is the resumption. We see the resumption of the battle with the Ammonites. Because you'll remember, like this whole David and Bathsheba episode, all of this happens while Israel is at war with the Ammonites. You remember chapter 11, verse 1, how all of this began in the spring of the year? The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem and so the, the David and Bathsheba parenthesis right, basically opens up there at the beginning of chapter 11 and doesn't close again until chapter 12, verse 25. Let I me mean, think about it. For two full chapters, that battle, which bookends this narrative, which, which any history book, any secular recounting would have put at the front in terms of importance and significance and priority and emphasis... It completely takes the backstage to what, in God's eyes, is much more important. A much bigger and more significant issue, which is that of David's obedience. But here again, right, consider the book ends. We resume the Ammonite festivities. Uh, Look at verse 26. Joab has basically done all the heavy lifting at this point. He's got the city of Rabbah under siege. He has taken the city of waters, which probably refers to that city's water source, So he's got the Ammonites on the brink of defeat. He calls in David to do his best Mariano Rivera impression and just close it all out. And that's exactly what David does. He just finishes them off. But I want you to see how this victory is described. Look at the language there. Verse 30, David takes the crown, the massive crown of their king. It's like 75 pounds and he puts it on his head as a symbol of victory. Now I assume, the text doesn't say but I assume that this is one of those things that your servants hold over your head for a photo op. He's not like walking around the the palace with this 75 pound thing on his head. But he takes their crown. And then verse 30, he brings out the spoil of the city. A very great amount. Verse 31, he makes the Ammonites his servants. And it's described as a complete victory over all the cities of the Ammonites. Now, don't those descriptions remind us of earlier chapters? I'm thinking specifically of 2 Samuel chapter 8. David's great military conquests. How the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so no, the kingdom of Israel and the glory of its king, they're never going to be the same because of David's sin As a matter of fact, the kingdom and its king are about to plunge into some very, very dark days in the next few chapters. But, at the same time, we're again reminded that David is still God's anointed king. He is still God's covenant king whom God will use to bless his people. Point number three, the resumption. Which brings us now to point number four, the redemption. The redemption. We come back to those verses 24 and 25 that we skipped over earlier. Uh, Let me read them now. Uh, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, did you notice? Did you notice the little trick that the author pulled on us in verse 24? It's very subtle. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. That In the 50th verse, after we first met her all the way back in chapter 11, verse 2, that is the very first time that the narrator actually uses her name. Back in chapter 11, verse 3, it was a messenger who reported, is not this Bathsheba? From then on, like whenever the narrator refers to her, it's always been the woman or the wife of Uriah. Even in our passage today, look at verse 15. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. But now even the narrator refers to her not only as Bathsheba, but as his wife, David's wife. As if to say, yes, this relationship started in sin. And yes, this relationship has brought much sadness and sorrow because of that sin. But, even with all that, David, even with all that, God is going to bless your marriage. God is going to redeem your marriage. She is your wife, Bathsheba. And not only is she your wife, but together you're going to have a child. The Lord takes away. And the Lord gives. And so the same God who takes away a son earlier in the chapter now gives them another son and this is no ordinary son. This son is Solomon. Solomon who will succeed his father David as king. a Solomon who would build the temple in Jerusalem that his father could not. Solomon who has Left even us with so much wisdom in the book of Proverbs. That Solomon. And so you remember how God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David on his sin? Well, here he sends that same Nathan to David again, but this time it's not a message of rebuke, it's a message of blessing. And the Lord loved him and sent a message. Sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah meaning beloved of the Lord. Friends, you would be hard pressed to find a marriage. Whether from the Bible or from our lives. Like of a marriage that was brought about through more sinful circumstances. Like there's adultery here, there's murder here, there's deception, there's cover-up, all of that. Like how could a marriage like that ever be restored and redeemed? But the God who restores the years the locust has eaten, the God who gives beauty for ashes, that God can redeem even what started as the most sinful of marriages. Maybe friends, you think about your own marriage and you look at your own life, your own family situation and you feel hopeless and helpless because it started in so much sin or because of the damage that your sin has done to it. Whatever your situation, you can take heart because David and Bathsheba is proof that there is no marriage so tarnished by sin that God can't bring ultimate good from it. There is no marriage so unredeemable that God can't yet glorify himself through it. Point number four, the redemption. But... This is, like, this is like those old infomercials, right? But there's more. There is yet more. It just keeps getting better and better because it's not just that Bathsheba is recognized as his wife. It's not just that Solomon, the great King Solomon, is going to come from that union. It's who else is going to come from that line, right? Many, many generations later. Turn over with me to the very first page of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus is the son of David. The Messiah must descend from David. We've known that since 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the question remains as we sit here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. How are we going to get from David to Jesus? Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, just the fact that Solomon's mother is mentioned at all, that is significant. Uh, In Matthew's genealogy, there are 41 fathers named. There are only four mothers named, uh, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, and Bathsheba. But notice, and we're used to this by now, aren't we? that Bathsheba is not called Bathsheba. Rahab, Ruth, and Mary are called Rahab, Ruth, and Mary. Bathsheba is once again called the wife of Uriah. And to bring our minds back, like even as we're reading the New Testament, to bring our minds back to the sin of 2 Samuel chapter 11. The adultery, the murder, the cover-up, all that. Not to tarnish David's name. Not to drag it through the mud, but to highlight the glory of God in his ability to bring light from darkness. Because from that impure and sinful relationship between David and Bathsheba would come one day one who was born in total purity, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that instinctively might feel a little strange to us. Like David has so many wives. He's got so many sons. Why in the world would God choose that wife and that son to bring about his Messiah? Maybe there's some who would point at that and say, That's unjust. That's unfair. That God would redeem something that wicked. How could God try to bring good out of something that sinful? But friends, if that's what we're thinking, I think we're missing the point. And God can, and God does, redeem even the vilest and most wicked and sinfulest of situations for his glory. He is the same God who not only saves the chief of sinners, not only saves the worst of the worst, but then uses him, his zeal, and his passion to be the single most influential person in the early church, the Apostle Paul. And friends, he's the same God who saves vile, wretched sinners like me and like you. And then uses us to serve him for his glory? And so really it's not out of character at all for God to bring about the savior of the world from this relationship between David and Bathsheba that's been so stained with sins. Sins like adultery and murder for which this savior descended from David and Bathsheba would one day die. you think about that long enough, that will blow your mind. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Point number four, the redemption. So here in 2 Samuel, God once again shows that even in the darkest moments when disastrous sin is being committed and we don't want to downplay anything that happened in chapter 11 that's a disaster but God is still in control and God is still working all things to his glory like behind David's sin God is very much at work God is very much at work to bring about his ultimate plan of salvation to save sinners like David. And so even after God takes away their first son, God grants to David and Bathsheba another son, King Solomon. And this son is beloved of the Lord, Jedediah. And that, of course, would ultimately lead, ultimately lead many generations down the line to a greater son of David, right? King Jesus, the greater Jedidiah, the one whom the Father would look upon at his baptism and declare what? This is the beloved of the Lord, Jedidiah. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's because of that Jedidiah the beloved of the Lord, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, because that Jedediah went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me and David, that we can have hope. Hope that even the darkest and worst of our sins, for David, it was adultery and murder, for you, me, whatever it may be, that even the worst of our sins can indeed be forgiven. Yes, in this narrative, we see repercussions, the consequences of David's sin. We see David's responses, uh, one of fervent prayer and one of fervent worship. We see the resumption of prior glories in the defeating of the Ammonites. But most of all, friends, let's take away the redemption. That our God is a redeemer. God of redemption one who truly works all things for our good and for his glory let's pray Father we give you praise even as we see just a glimpse of your infinite wisdom in how you worked through even this most tragic of situations to bring about the Messiah your son your beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, increase our faith, increase our dependence upon you, increase our love for you, even as we continue to meditate on your word. We love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.